on this edition of the program. We do a little source diving on some articles that came out this week. Who's behind these messages? And we're joined by Dimitri Melhorn, who is a founder of Investing in Us investing in us it's one of the big clearing houses for money that has gone into politics over the last four years and we have a really awesome and candid conversation about what works what doesn't and what the strategy for the biden administration should be going forward it's all coming up this is made possible by bow them bones daily tech news show v and craig Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for February 16th. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you here in Austin, Texas. And and hopefully you guys did not forget Valentine's Day. Like, I nearly forgot the date to this podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, hopefully it's been a good week. Uh, some Some nice weather out here in central Texas. But. There have been some stormy clouds in Washington, D.C. over the last week. So we're going to do something that we haven't done in a while. If you've not listened to this show uh, recently, then, you know, you might not have heard, like I am wont to mention, that I was born into this world of politics as a journalist. That's what I got my degree in. That's what I wanted to do before the entire news industry fell apart. And uh, I was cast off into the ungovernable wildernesses of the internet, which I foraged and learned to speak amongst the animals. (laughs) I have made my own kingdom now. But the, the long and the short of it is that I am somebody that still has a very keen sense of how to read stories for sources. If you're not familiar with how a story comes together from a reporter's point of view, you usually have one or two people that you are talking, if you're on a beat, right? So this is normally if you're a reporter, you're on a beat. Like our friend Katie Stetch, who I worked with oh so many years ago. She's now uh, at the Wall Street Journal. She works on Congress. That's her beat. That's her job. She wakes up every day and she is looking to cover Congress. Now, along with your editor who is assigning stories and helping put things together, you as a reporter need to stay on the beat and understand what the news is. And you're often working on one or two things, or you understand that there's going to be certain things that happen throughout a whatever period of time. You understand for in, Cong- in Congress, for example, that certain bills are being worked on. They're eventually going to get passed. There are deadlines that need to get met. There are conflicts that will come to a head. You're keeping an eye on a lot of that. In the world of high-level presidential politics, it is largely what I would define as access journalism. Is oftentimes can get a bad rap because it is very source dependent, which means 
if you're a reporter, you got to be nice to the sources. You got to have a good relationship with the sources. A uh, reporter who is in that world, either you are really, really connected at getting a lot of people to tell you a bunch of stuff that other people don't want you to hear, or you're nice to people and, and people give you stuff. Usually it's a combination of the two. But access journalism is, in my opinion, often marked that when somebody really wants to say something, they can say it to you off the record. Now, why is a reporter do you run off the record stuff? Well, number one, it's usually good news. And for me, and I'm a bit of a curmudgeon on this, I think journalistically we've let the 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 line for which off the record stuff totally off the record stories uh I, I think that we've we've let that go a little bit more than we should but then again the entire institution of journalism is crumbling and nobody can make money so who am i to be precious about the rules but two stories came out this week that i want to go through here and I want you guys to to pay attention to them based on the sourcing. The first one is from Axios. This is February 12th. Exclusive. How Biden botched the border. Okay. So immediately you got a lot of questions. This is an exclusive. How Biden botched the border. So the first thing that you're going to assume is that nobody in the Biden, the immediate Biden world is probably the source of this story. <laughs> the first thing you always want to think is who is benefiting from this story? Okay. So let's get into it here. This is, this is the beginning. Aboard Air Force One en route to tour the southern border in January of 2023, President Biden sat at the head of his conference table and exploded with fury. The president lit into his team, which included then Deputy Chief of Staff Jen O'Malley Dillon, Homeland Security Advisor Lee Sherwood Randall, and other immigration officials. He demanded obscure immigration data points and vented when his staff didn't have them handy. In this previously unreported meeting, recounted to Axios by three people familiar with the events, is emblematic of Biden's struggles with the border crisis during the past three years. Infighting, infighting blame-shifting, and indecision. Okay. So let's look for the quotes. Because by the way, we're going to take a wild guess that the people who are here in this meeting that are reporting it are not Deputy, then Deputy Chief of Staff Jen O'Malley Dillon, who has since retreated to the Biden campaign. We're going to assume it's not Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood Randall. We're going to assume it's not Joe Biden. So we're going to we're going to say it's probably other immigration officials or friends of other immigration officials. Someone in there. We don't think that any of the named people are the sources. Let's look for the quotes, right? That, that's what you want. You want to know who's putting a quote out there. Because spoiler for this story, nobody is on the record. The idea that nobody wanted to own it came up it repeatedly in interviews about the border crisis. But the problem required a robust and coordinated response at several levels of the federal government. As the humanitarian conditions at the border have deteriorated and the pollock surrounding immigration have become a thorn for Biden, 
He becomes scratchier when the issue comes up, according to current and former aides. There is no definite incentives to be the person who owns the scary issue with no solutions. If you're the person the president that's briefing the president, you get to piss him off every day. All right, now I got some hints. I got some hints. So in general, any kind of campaign, any kind of uh, administration, you're going to have people that are that are upset. You know, it's a tough job. It's it's a real pressure cooker. And certainly you know, the, the best four years in journalism came when Donald Trump was in the White House, not only because he had a lot of people paying attention, because his White House leaked like a sieve. They, they could not run and tell reporters fast enough every little thing that was happening. And sometimes things that probably weren't happening just so they could make sure that they were still the special little source of the reporters. But this is different. Because the Biden administration doesn't leak like that, or at least they haven't. They've been pretty close-knit. And the border is a big issue for Biden. The Biden administration very much wants to own the border. They want it to be known that it is the Republicans, the slapdash, not serious Republicans, who refuse to do something about the border. This came out Monday after that. After a really rough couple days. So you got to imagine that the people inside the Biden administration who are very frustrated with the leadership are probably the most likely culprits here. Let's get to this part. Vice President Kamala Harris in her office made clear to other people in the administration that her responsibilities began and ended with the factors driving people to leave Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, the issue Biden had assigned her to examine. As the migration became more global, Harris's team remained focused on the Northern Triangle in Mexico. A former Biden senior official told Axios she's been at best ineffective and at worst sporadically engaged and not seeing it was her responsibility. It's an opportunity for her and she didn't fill the breach. Okay. Now, I would say that these two paragraphs here are probably, like, they are mild. They're not even criticism of Kamala Harris. They're just descriptors of what you would say if somebody said, why aren't you doing a better job at the border? You would say, you told me to focus on these countries. So I got my... I got my antennas up. And then and then you 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 tag it with this somebody saying something mean about Kamala. Okay. I'm just saying, Spidey sense is tingling. Here's the best part of this uh this article here, though. It is about domestic policy advisor Susan Rice and her issue. With Javier Becerra. I'm going to read this directly. Domestic policy advisor Susan Rice emerges a central and controversial coordinator of the administration's approach to the border. Some officials found her needlessly combative and disagreeing with her policy wise, but even many of her critics credit her with taking on more responsibility on the border at a time when other top Biden officials were shying away. 
There was and still is deep animosity toward Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra for what was seen as his reluctance to find more space in child migrant shelters, which were overseen by HHS. Rice referred to Becerra as a bitch ass and privately called him an idiot. During one meeting when Biden was tearing into Becerra, Rice passed Mayorkas a note that read, don't save him. Now, Susan Rice was a shortlist finalist to be vice president. This is something that was widely reported. There does seem to be a bit of a rivalry between Kamala Harris and Susan Rice. But let's go back to that initial thought. If you've got stuff in here that is obviously inside gossip from the Biden administration, but this is clearly not the leadership of the Biden administration that is leaking this, because otherwise it would paint them in a far more competent light. Then the only question is, who has access that also has the motive to paint things like that? If you're going to take a wild guess and say Kamala Harris's office, you know, I think that that would be a good place to start. All right. So that's an example of something that is not blessed by the Biden administration. Let's take a look at something that I do believe is blessed by the Biden administration. And this is a story from Politico. This was on February 9th. White House frustration with Garland Grows. Written by Jonathan Lemire and Sam Stein. We begin. Joe Biden has told aides and outside advisors that Attorney General Merrick Garland did not do enough to rein in special counsel report, stating that the president had diminished mental faculties, according to two people close to the president, as White House frustration with the head of the Justice Department grows. The report from special counsel Robert Hur ultimately cleared Biden of any charges stemming from his handling of classified documents that were found at Biden's think tank in his home. But Hur's explanation for not bringing the charges that Biden would have persuaded the jury he was a forgetful old man upended the presidential campaign and infuriated the White House. Now, we're going to get into this with uh, uh, Dimitri Melhorn a little bit later in the show. He disagrees with me. He, he thinks that Joe Biden was was well within uh, and is it is strategically good for him to be taking on the age issue head on and and painting Robert Hur as a partisan figure. And I don't disagree with him in terms of the strategy of it. What I do wonder is whether or not Biden should be doing it. Because this came out right after Biden went out, did a press conference and, you know, made another mistake about Egypt and Mexico. And now all of a sudden, John Stewart's making fun of him. There's just a lot that went on there. But if you're going to have people out here knifing not only the special counsel, but also the attorney general, this is a better way to do it. Going out and having your hatchet man swing take big swings anonymously in Politico. I think that's, that's the way that you can, you can continue to sort of put that into the atmosphere without putting your name on it. They put the blame on Garland who said they should have demanded edits to her report, including around the description of Biden's faltering memories. 
Frustration within the White House at Garland has been growing steadily. Last year, Biden privately denounced how long the probe into his son was taking, telling aides and outside allies that he believed the stress could send Hunter Biden spiraling back into addiction, according to the same two people. The elder Biden, the people said, told the confidants that Garland should not have empowered a special counsel to look into his son, believing that he was caving to outside pressure. This is something that you have heard a lot about the special counsel or a lot about just Garland in general caving to outside pressure has been a, uh, a big thing, which I, I'm not sure how much I love that framing for Biden because it creates a binary. If you are caving to outside pressure, then you are not caving to inside pressure. And Joe Biden's winning strategy in 2020 was that he did not put inside pressure on. The attorney general was no longer going to be the president's personal lawyer. He was not going to be an attack dog. He wasn't going to be Bill Barr. He was going to be an independent entity. So when you were making inside versus outside, it, it's, it's a half measure to saying that Merrick Garland is caving to Republican pressure or he is susceptible to Republican X, Y, Z. Which either you're going to go there or you're not. So if you're, if, you're, if you're dipping a little toe, it's a little bit like you can't be half pregnant. Either the guy's doing a good job and you support him or you don't. Now, if this is something that is way from the outside, if it's just like a, a liberal columnist or something like that, and they're saying Merrick Garland is a Republican shill, then that's one thing. You can attack somebody like that. But if it's from within the administration, which this clearly is, then, you know, I don't know. Because I've heard the same phrase a lot. Succumbing to outside pressure, not just on this, but other stuff. Let's go back. In recent week, President Biden has grumbled aides and advisor that Garland moves sooner into his investigation to former President Donald Trump's election interference. A trial may already be underway or have even concluded, according to two people, granted anonymity to discuss private matters. The trial still could take place before the election, and much of that delay is owed not to Garland, but to deliberate resistance put up by the former president. So that's it. We are emptying the notebook. These two people that are that are talking, God knows who they could be and who they work for. But these two people are emptying the notebook on grievances against Garland. So not only is it you shouldn't have opened a special counsel into Hunter. If you did open a special counsel into Hunter, it should have went faster. Hunter might relapse into addiction. But also, you did not bring these charges fast enough against Donald Trump. And now he has the opportunity to delay this thing until after the election. Beyond that, we continue. Garland felt the need to appoint a special counsel in the classified documents case, in part because the president seemed. All right. So this is Garland fighting back. A spokesman for the Department of Justice declined comment. But one former senior Justice Department official noted that some of the frustrations being directed at Garland would be better directed toward the White House. OK, so now we're fighting back. This begins with the Biden sources. They go to the Department of Justice. Now the Department of Justice is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. The president's team, we continue, had the option to exert executive privilege over elements of her's report, but declined to do so. 
And had Garland made edits to the report, he would have to explain those redactions to Congress. Beyond that, Garland felt the need to appoint a special counsel in the classified documents case in part because the president seemed bungled when the first documents were discovered. Quote, the way in which the White House story kept changing at the, on the outset made it more difficult for the Justice Department to resist having a special counsel. The former official who spoke on condition of anonymity said, had there been a very clear story from the beginning, it would have been easier. That's, you know, my, my sense of it. And I tend to believe that this was a better way using the black ops was a better way to hammer Garland, a better way to hammer her than to do it directly from the campaign. We mentioned this in the Wednesday episode and we talked more about it with Dimitri, but this is the kind of stuff that I do think is helpful because you can be a little bit more direct. But there we go. A little game of source sleuthing for a couple very interesting stories this week. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and make sure that you get on our $3 level that gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. Oh, we'd love to see it. Podcast on Sunday, podcast on Thursday, and we got news breaking at all times, baby. Head on over there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you to everybody who has done it. We have had a great election year so far, and I think we are only going to be doing much better from here. The Republican-led House has impeached Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over allegations of failing to enforce border laws and high illegal immigration, a charge he denies as baseless for the record. This historic move marks only the second cabinet impeachment since William Belknap in 1876. Wow. Dusting off the history books. The decision largely seen as based as on policy disagreements rather than specific crimes has drawn criticism from some Republicans and many Democrats. The articles of impeachment passed narrowly 214 to 213, primarily supported by Republicans with three Republicans joining the Democrats in opposition. This follows a failed attempt to impeach Mayorkas on similar grounds last week. Despite the House's decision, the impeachment articles are expected to be rejected by the Senate's Democratic majority. I will add, doy, making Mayorkas's removal highly unlikely. Speaker Mike Johnson justified the impeachment, citing the severity of the border situation and constitutional obligations. However, the Department of Homeland Security refuted the charges, emphasizing Mayorkas's dedication to public service and law enforcement. The impeachment is perceived by some as an attack on Joe Biden's border policies. I add editorially, double doy with the public generally disapproving of Biden's handling of immigration issues. Uh, this was a hard lift. <laughs> they had to wait for Steve Scalise to get out of cancer treatment because they didn't have the votes. They squeak it by. This is a promise that Mike Johnson, the speaker, made to the elements, the animated elements of his Republican constituency there in the House, which just got shorter by one seat on 
Tuesday night after Tom Swazi punched his ticket to return to the House for the Democrats, therefore putting the, the Republican majority one vote shorter. It's already razor thin, and now it's even razor thin. So these are the things that you got to do to keep things moving. You've got an extraordinarily animated and very fractious caucus. Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, uh, I don't think that a ton of people have said that he is doing the best job on the planet, but yeah, there we go. He is now impeached for the first. He joins old Billy Belknap from 1876. Jim Clyburn, a key figure in the House Democratic leadership, announced his decision to step down from his position as an assistant Democratic leader. The move marks a significant shift in Democratic leadership following the recent transition of the 118th Congress. Clyburn, known for his influential role, had previously transitioned from the whip position to an assistant leader role, a position created during the leadership overhaul to make sure that Jim Clyburn had something to do. His decision to step down aligns with similar moves by other Democratic leaders for a sea change in leadership. Both Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi relinquished their leadership roles at the beginning of the current Congress, signaling a generational shift in the party's hierarchy. Pelosi, interestingly, chose not to sink any committee assignments this term despite running for re-election. She's just kind of there. Clyburn's departure opens up the assistant leadership position, potentially sparking competition among party members. Representative Joe Nagusi has been reported to be launching a bid for the assistant leader role. Nagusi, a protege of Clyburn, has maintained a close relationship with the South Carolina representative for years. The leadership change indicates a, bo- a broader transition within the Democratic Party. I almost said border because I was reading the Mayorkas thing. As it prepares for the future challenges and opportunities under a new generation of leaders. Very interesting to see where where uh, uh, James Clyburn goes. And it does appear that the Democrats have undergone a real generational shift. This was a, a big issue for them over the last few years. Nancy Pelosi gone, but not gone. Still there, but not in a speaker role. And now Clyburn, you know, who knows how long he'll be in in Congress, but he will he will forever be the Oracle of South Carolina. I mean, now that he has South Carolina this far up into the into the, the, the calendar, the primary calendar, I feel like he's like, all right, my job is done here. I'm good. I'm good. And that'll wrap it up for our update. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go. Get on our Patreon. Come on. The water's fine. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Joining me now is Dimitri Melhorn of Investing in Us. Or U.S. I guess that's the point of it. It is U.S. Capital U.S. Dimitri, welcome to the show. Uh, you know, Justin, a lot of people never realize that U.S. is also us. Did you ever, did you ever hear that? So there we go. 
Well, yeah. now, now, now we know, uh, uh look, I, I'm very, very excited to talk to you because, uh, on, on our show, we very much are about the X's and O's and breaking down, uh, the, the how and why of a campaign as well as the ideas. And you are somebody that is taking a very active role in terms of funding the, uh, issues that are animating this election. Can you just discuss what investing in us is and how you got into it? Yeah. So uh, one of the things about your show that is very much consistent with the work that we do is that we care only about winning elections. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, in our particular case, we were formed because we wanted to make very sure as we wanted as much as possible to uh, reduce the likelihood of President Trump winning a second term. And we started that work uh, really in December of 2016. Uh, and, uh, my so wasted is, no time. <laughs> yes. It, uh, uh, our, our background. Uh, so the, the group of us involved is, is mostly, uh, you know, venture capitalists, tech investors, tech entrepreneurs, uh, a few people in finance. And, um, we, uh, ba- basically we looked at what happened in 2016 and for all of the challenges and, and, and problems that, uh, uh, Clinton and her campaign faced, they were not a terrible ticket and they had way more money and yet they still lost. Mm-hmm. And so our approach as outsiders was to say, uh, what can we do with our expertise in venture capital and finance to try to accelerate the pace of innovation uh, on the uh, anti-fascist side of the ledger to reduce the odds of a Trump reelect? Just in terms uh, of campaign efficacy. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so when you're sitting there in, 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 you know, Christmas time, 2016, uh, obviously that is a, a, a very, very, uh, highly emotionally charged moment. Uh, what, what are, what, what's the battle plan sketched out from your perspective? What were, what, what were the weaknesses of the, the Trump, uh, machine that you could attack? So, uh, this may be a less interesting answer to you than uh, than the substance, but the the initial answer was just actually a process okay. uh, point, which is uh, how do you know what works? How do you know what's true? Because uh, the problem with politics, uh, I don't know. Have you ever read the Politics Industry by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter? I have not. No. Uh, the problem with politics, as you've noted, is that it is an industry where there's really one event that matters every couple of years. And uh, mm-hmm. it is very hard to know which things you won because of and which things you won despite. Yeah. And every election has a huge number of people involved. Every presidential election has you know, obviously millions by definition. Uh, and all sorts of people are doing all sorts of things. And afterwards, there's a scrum to figure out what you won because and what you won despite. <laughs> and uh, in that scrum, it's very good. It's very difficult to have good information. And over time, um, you will have the people who will rise to really control the campaign ecosystem will be those who are best at the knife fighting and yes. claiming credit, not those yes. who are necessarily best at winning elections because the people who are best at winning elections eventually go on and do other things because they're good at other things too. And so uh, our belief is that uh, the this structural problem with politics meant that by losing the White House, the typical pattern 
was that it would take about eight years for the party to get its act together and have enough innovation to figure out how to barnstorm in with the right set of tactics to win. Uh, that is obviously what happened with Donald Trump coming in as an outsider in 2016. It is mm -hmm. also what happened with Barack Obama coming in as an outsider in 2008 and George W. Bush from Texas and Karl Rove in, two, you know, and so on and so and on. so on and so on. Yeah. Goes all the way back. And it is a repeating pattern in the post-Civil War era that the parties flip the White House roughly every eight years. Not always, but roughly. And so as a rough rule of thumb, we realized that if things didn't change, it would take the Democrats uh, eight years to figure out how to get Trump out of office. And we did not believe that uh, the American experiment would survive that. So uh, we wanted to accelerate the ability of the other party to oust him uh, in that amount of time. Now, so that's that's the process. Now, the question is, in light of that, how do you do that? What kind of evidence counts? And one of the things we realized or that we believed is that the only evidence that counts is winning an actual election. Yes. That's the only thing that matters. And the election that we cared about was going to be taking place in the fall of 2020. And so every election between when we started thinking in Christmas of 2016 and the big presidential election in 2020 was an opportunity to experiment, learn, do. And so we funded literally hundreds of different groups to try different things uh, over time and measured them as best we could, sometimes quantitatively, sometimes more subjectively. Um, and the ones that did the best and one, you know, we would try to scale. So we started with the House of Delegates races in Virginia in 2017. And then we moved on to uh, the congressional battlegrounds in 2018. Uh, we did a lot with the specials uh, along the way. We got involved uh, toward the end in the presidential primary. And, um, uh, and by the end, we were uh, putting... Uh, our recommendations, our capital, and others were following us at this point as well um, to uh, to more innovative organizations, which are the ones that uh, I believe will make the difference in getting Democrats over the top against Trump this time. So when you're experimenting, I would imagine that broadly this kind of goes into offense and defense, either you uh, fighting against Republican candidates in some of those battlegrounds that you were describing before or bolstering the Democratic candidates in those battlegrounds or at least candidates that you think would roughly be analogous to Trump versus a Democratic candidate in 2020. Uh, what did you find in that experimentation process was the most effective? So, um, look. Let me start with the ones that were really, that did not work, just because that okay. gives you a little bit of an illustration. I love it. Yeah, let's go. So, um, for example, we've spent a lot of energy early trying to support, incubate, inculcate resistance to Trumpism in the center and on the right uh, and within okay. the Republican Party. Uh, so, for example, we put a substantial investment into CrowdPack which was a decentralized platform that helped raise money for people who have ended up being superstars, like uh, current Democratic senator, uh, congressman and uh, senatorial candidate Andy Kim used CrowdPack as part of how he broke in. Same for Lauren Underwood, quite a few others, uh, but it was also available to Republicans, et cetera. And um, it was the CEO was a guy named Steve Hilton, and he went on to become a Fox News contributor. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. the the uh, the Republican opposition, the principled Republican opposition has mostly crumbled 
And most of the efforts we made to invest in that failed. Uh, we also made some very, very big uh, data investments that failed. For example, we were backers of Alloy Commons, which was supposed to be a big data ecosystem to improve upon the combination of van and catalyst and everything else that was out there. Um, and, uh, you know, that ended up basically imploding, uh, and the assets ended up being transferred over to Jeremy Smith at Civitech, who's using them very effectively to, uh, improve voter data file management and improve voter registration and things like that. So, um, th that's, that's an example of a mix of things that, uh, did and didn't work. But by the way, like our efforts in the, uh, anti-Trump Republican world mostly failed, but only mostly like we we were able to provide some of the transition capital that helped Sarah Longwell and the bulwark and that whole crowd get off and running. Gotcha. And they're very effective. So. So that was so so looking back on it, the idea of bolstering Republican uh, uh, stopping power to Trump was was not something that that the, the, the juice was worth the squeeze on. Uh, in retrospect, it wasn't now. Yeah. Does that mean it was never available or does that mean just that our strategies failed? I, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, it did not work, obviously. Uh, now, what did work? So. Um, I, so one of the one of the things that um, that we look at, there, there are various ways, the ways that we can look at it. But, um, for example, one thing that we believe worked uh, was the the. Uh, uh, spending money in the courts. And the reason why we believe litigation matters is because at the end of the day, when Americans are not sure who to trust and there's misinformation flying, we as a country tend to look to the courts. Yeah. We have for centuries, uh, you know, out of the Anglo-American tradition, that's where the truth is found. We have a bunch of shows and dramas about it. People know that. And so, um, Along the way, there have been uh, a number of investments in litigation matters, both uh, uh, direct partisan litigation as well as nonpartisan litigation that have made a difference. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is a group called Protect Democracy, which is a 501c3 charitable nonprofit that uh, has recruited and deployed a bunch of seasoned uh, public officials and lawyers from uh, both parties uh, to help set up and reinforce guardrails around law enforcement. And they were a crucial part of some of the you know, processes along the way that led to, for example, the impeachments, which obviously did not succeed, but helped to establish the record of some accountability. Yeah. Uh, also, as an example, we helped provide uh, third-party uh, payer support for the lawyers for Jean Carroll so that uh, she is going to be able to keep basically all of the $87 million or whatever it is that Donald Trump now owes her. And frankly, she would not have been able to uh, afford those lawyers um, without help. And yeah. you know, that kind of accountability matters. People, you know, if people in this in this year, as they, you know, the late deciders are deciding, remind me who Donald Trump is, I think it's going to be important that when they look up, there will be a unanimous jury uh, decision that he was liable for raping this woman, you know? Yeah. So when you look at, at that uh, case specifically, uh, if from the, the electoral side of it, not only are you looking at it from a, a, a judgment for a prospective voter to Donald Trump, but I could only imagine that it's also something that spends a lot of time in the news. And, and it is a very loud event in a way that another uh, political action like advertising would probably come and go. 
Yeah, loud is, you're right. What you are saying is fundamentally correct. I, I, uh, I would push back a little bit on your choice of adjective. It's not that it's loud okay. because uh, there's a lot of noise all over the place. The thing that's valuable about the courts is that the mainstream news, at least, uh, does not feel the need to both sides it. Right. Like the mainstream okay. news reporting Donald Trump and Trump Corporation found guilty of fraud. Right. Uh, found yeah. liable or liable for fraud or something. Uh, they don't feel the need to, to then also say at the same time, President Biden, you know, paid his brother back a loan or something, whatever. Like they, they just don't yeah. need to do it. Uh, and so it has just a veneer. You say the ads come and go. It's less that the ads come and go. It's that the ads. um Oh, it's, it's not that they're not loud, that they're not as loud, but you're right that they come and go. It's because we're resistant to them. We yes. know not to trust them. Whereas with uh, proceedings that are resolved in our, in our legal process, people tr just inherently trust them more. And so they stick better. I mean, I would say they're newsworthy in, in the they definition are, of genuinely. newsworthy, like like they are just something that doesn't normally happen. You don't normally see this yes. level, uh, at least for Trump specifically going into this election. Uh, before we get into 2024, let me just ask you about ads in general. What What is your your philosophy on that kind of more traditional political expenditure? Because everything that you've talked about through this point has been very forward thinking and, and trying to be outside the box from what a, a normal pack would be, which is let's facilitate a campaign and spend a bunch of money on ads? Well, let me start with what I think the answer is, but there's a lot of, it's like one of those mazes where you had to get to a lot of dead ends to get to the answer. So if you have follow-up yes. questions, feel free. Let's but go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, the, the fundamental answer is that um, television ads are still a killer app. You have to do them. Um, but there are huge variations in how well you do them. Uh, and uh, the cost effectiveness of them. So for the purposes of the, uh, for the purposes of the presidency, basically uh, the, the, the groups that are really good at this uh, and it's the democratic super PACs that have now become quite good at it. Future forward USA, which is run by Chauncey McLean and American bridge, which is run by, you know, Mary Pat Bonner and Bradley Bachock and that whole crowd. Um, those organizations uh, what they do is they, they, they uh, like, for example, future forward, they have already started buying television time. Yes. Because the rates are much lower now. Yeah. But the ads that they run, will, they will not run any ads now. Or yeah. maybe they are, but it's, if, if so, they're doing it for donors. That's not their main strategy. Like running ads now is basically not useful for yeah. anything, any purposes whatsoever, not even for testing. It is a, uh, there was a panel the other day um, about uh, whether it was a good idea to, uh, to spend money on ads. And the panel was Rachel Maddow visiting Pod Save America, Dan Pfeiffer, all these incredibly smart, incredibly smart democratic strategists and thinkers. And they were all saying it's a good idea to be spending money on ads now because maybe something sticks. And that, it, that was, it's just so wrong. Uh, the only way they could say that is if they just didn't know the other ways you could spend that money. It's such a waste of money. It, it, it evaporates into the air and goes away and no one remembers it. The decay rate is super high. And the people who have not yet decided which way they're going to vote, the actual voters that you might move, yeah. they are not, they do not want to decide. They haven't tuned they in. Act, yeah. yeah. They're going to decide at the last minute they really don't want to. And so they're going to decide in the context of the salience, 
when they feel like they have to, which is after Labor Day. And so it's in that last two months when you need to be on the air. So reserve all that time now, but don't decide now what to run. Decide what to run then and decide it. And one of the things that Future Forward does, and they did this in 2000, uh, in 2020 as well, is uh, they they generated and tested their own ads based on hunches that they were seeing based on them. But they also uh, brought into uh, and tested uh, ads from the other super PACs, right? Like Priorities USA yeah. and so forth. And uh, so when they're testing all those ads, uh, you know, they start showing out the results. And so instead of people running ads that please the donors, which is a huge problem in both parties. Sure, I would you know, imagine. You write ads to please donors so you can get money, but those yeah. ads don't actually move voters. Yeah. Uh, huge problem in 2016 on our side in particular, um, but it's a problem in general for both parties. Future Forward USA just did away with that. We have ads, you have ads. We will, we will run the ads that are doing best at the time. That's it. That's the, there's no other uh, sign off uh, up the chain where we're just going to test them. We're going to see which ones do well and we're going to put them on the air. Right. And we're going to test them real time because a test two months early won't be valid because yeah. you're testing whether the ad moves you in the conditions you're in right now. Yeah. So uh, so, for example, issues that are salient right now, uh, Israel, inflation. Are they going to be salient in August? In September? I don't know. Maybe. We don't know. Yeah. We just don't know yet. And so, uh, so, so, uh, now the other thing I'll say about ads is that, um, there are a number of really good testing platforms for the late testing, right? So, uh, some of the groups that, so we put, uh, we put some capital through uh, a research consortium called Higher Ground Labs. Have you heard of them? No. It's a democratic venture capital incubator and they spun out a bunch of, tech and new companies after, uh, you know, starting in 2017. And several of them were polling and uh, message testing consortium, uh, consortia like, let's uh, um, see, Swayable was one, Avalanche, Grow Progress, Change Research. Uh, these all exist now and they're quite good. So there's mm-hmm. a number of good. And, and then also the big existing platforms like Civis Analytics have some really good content testing tools as well. So the testing tools uh, to to d- decide late which ones you're going to run are very, very good. Uh, and so what you do is you just run those and then you mix up across TV and digital just based on a specific optimization, right? So it's, you know. Yeah. Like so it's, the, it should be about 50-50 probably. Yeah, let me let me ask you that because I mean we're going to get a little bit into the weeds on on kind of the 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 efficiency money wise here, but if you are a pack, one of the big arguments, especially now as as we've blended a lot of the lines between what a traditional pack should do versus a campaign, we saw Ron DeSantis's uh, uh, pack, which effectively ran his campaign, turned out to be a disaster, but it yeah, was it a really well. yeah, it was an absolute absolute crap show. But uh, uh, there is a By lot the way, of experimentation. I retrospective of the DeSantis campaign. I agreed with it completely. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, you know, there's, um, there's, uh, the, the, the question is, 
if a campaign can buy a television ad for cheaper than a super PAC can, but a super PAC can raise an infinite amount of money in a way that a campaign cannot, what's the best way to put money on television? Should you have the campaign raise the money? Should you direct those donors to the super PAC? And then in a evolving media world where, like you said, if it's 50, 50 digital television, should the PAC be fake focusing far more on things where there are no penalties for PAC buying the, the, the media like on uh, online, which is increasingly how people get their television to begin with. Uh, yes. So uh, everything you've asked is right. And the shorthand is roughly um, if you are, so our role is as, as you, at the beginning, you asked what is investing in us and what investing in us is basically a club mm-hmm. investing in the idea of the United States of America as an enlightenment era polity. <laughs> And okay. uh, the uh, uh, and the specific threat posed by uh, the Trump movement is a very ancient threat. It's a very normal part of human existence, but it's one that this country has avoided mostly. Uh, certainly, at, at the federal level, we have avoided uh, until uh, now. Uh, and by that, I mean the, the you know the peaceful transfer of power and um, uh, uh, and, and sort of uh, protecting all of that. So, if you're talking to people who have uh, a lot of money, high net worth individuals who've been successful in this society um, and they uh, uh, and they want to preserve it, the first thing to do is to give money in hard dollars. Yeah. Give away hard dollars until there's no other place to give anyway, um, away anything else because you can just, it's just better math, right? Even if the decision is slightly worse, you know, if you get like three times better buying rates, you get three yeah. times as much reach. It's not close. Right. Uh, so um, but there's a there's a limit. Like, I think the limit for an individual to give to all of the alphabet soup of the committees together, if you're not barred in any way by by, uh, you know, pay to play rules and so forth. I think the ceiling is uh, under a million dollars. Yeah. So if you're someone who's a high net worth individual who wants to do more than that, then, you know, start with that and then do more. Yeah. So you would, you would then, you know, not only give to all the committees, give all the campaigns, but then you are giving to super PACs for which and organizations that, that would, that would do it. Now with that, what is your personal guideline and, and without getting into necessarily this race or we can, if you want, uh, how should that money be split from, from the PAC perspective on television versus digital? Should it be 50, 50, should it be more than that? So I am not uh, a deep expert and the super PACs that I mentioned, Bridge and Future Forward, uh, have plenty of those kinds of experts. Okay. Uh, so they will get that optimization right. But what I will tell you is that your your basic instinct is correct, that uh, for super PACs, digital should be more emphasized than it has been. My understanding is that the super PACs this, this cycle are going to go about 50-50. Yeah, that, that's, what, that's what I that's what I'd heard. And I, I think that's 100 percent right. In fact, I would I would almost even wonder whether or not this will be the last time that it's 50 50 and not something yeah, tilted more tilted, more digital, especially yeah. if you look at where media is being consumed. Well, the other thing I just say, Justin, just to be clear, is strengthening American civil society through political philanthropy to prevent the Trumpist movement from taking office does not happen only through uh you know, super PACs and litigation. It happens through 501c3 turnout work. It happens through, you know, public engagement and all the things. So I just, I didn't want you to think that it was only- No, no, no. It was only, like C4s are obviously a huge part of it as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by it. Uh, let's, 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 uh, focus on 2024 though. Uh, while we were going back and forth, uh, via email to set this up, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the big story of our current political calendar far away from election day, though it is, is the, uh, the, her report and the Biden campaign and administration's reaction to it. Uh, and you mentioned that you had a point of view on it. Uh, yeah. uh what is your thought? Yeah. It's just, um, uh, I, I just my point of view is just amplifying some of the good work that's already been out there. So at the time we were having that exchange, uh, some of the good stuff had not come out. Uh, on the left, Heather Cox Richardson wrote a lot about this. On the right, uh, the Bulwark uh, has written a lot about this. But basically, um, Biden, I, I've interacted with Biden personally, and I've interacted. Uh, several of my friends work in his administration, including a couple of cab cabinet secretaries. This guy does not have the age problems that people fear. The age problem mm -hmm. that people fear is that he will not be a good president. That's not his okay. problem. He does not have that problem. He sits in huge, long meetings all day. Uh, and is able to direct the presidency. And it's been a fairly successful presidency in a very tumultuous time. We have the most successful economy in the world right now, uh, and it's not close. And um, the age, uh, there's a few reasons why age is hurting Biden a lot right now and in general. Uh, one is um, Age is the one thing that Republicans can say about Biden that is a deep critique that is actually true. That he's older. Yeah, because like most of what they say about him is just objectively false. Like he clearly doesn't cave to the left. He's clearly not about to appoint AOC. He, you know, he gave him the immigration bill, right? <laughs> you know, the economy's yeah. good, shots in arms, right? Like, but he is old. Yeah. Right. The other thing is that his manifestation of old, like from the perspective of America's best interests, what you don't want is someone who is getting old in a way where they're becoming crazy and cranky and full of narcissistic rage and you know that sort of thing. That would be dangerous old. Yeah. But uh, and Biden doesn't have that. What Biden does have that everybody can see is the physical manifestations. Yeah. He shuffles. Yeah. He moves gingerly. Yeah, it's obvious. Now, the problem is, is that in a visual, physical environment, we're all, you know, social mammals, social primates. And we see this big alpha shouting around. And we're like, oh, that kind of feels like a leader. And then you've got this other guy who is amazing, but is a little more soft spoken and kind of shuffles a little bit. And instinctively, all of us orient around that. And there's an instinctive thing we have to deal with. Um, but I. I Anyway, I just wanted to like just be out there as someone who's in this space in the donor community. Just very clearly, this is going to be an election between Trump and Biden. Biden yeah. has been an amazing president. Biden's age clearly has not stopped him from being a good president thus far. And there are plenty of fields, including uh, diplomacy and finance, where um, the value of age in terms of wisdom and networks is uh, offsets the things you lose. And uh, an example that, you know, Reed and I like to give sometimes is a friend of mine and I like to give uh, is that uh, Warren Buffett made the vast majority of his money after he turned 83, you know? Yeah. Uh, so w w with all that being said, and that is certainly an argument that I have that I have seen. Uh, what is the best way to make that argument to the American people? Because uh, 
you know, obviously that's going to be the theory of the case. This is going to be an issue that will be dealt with. And from my perspective as, as a commentator who watches this, what I don't think is helpful for the Biden uh, either administration or campaign as they merge coming up through the next few months is to be defensive about it. And that's what I thought was was a mistake in how the reaction to this report. I thought they had a win on their hands with him not being charged. And instead it became we're now entering into our first full week of talking about the the report that I think largely happened because they reacted to it immediately. This is interesting. Yeah, I've uh, I was uh, listening to some of your stuff on this and um you make some good points, but I think I actually disagree with your perspective on this. Okay. So, um look, let me start with what I think the best answer would be. The best answer uh is not to be defensive, but to have fun with it. Yes, I would agree. So, um there's this guy I'm, I'm cribbing ruthlessly from Jonathan Last who's a uh, this conservative Catholic writer, but he says, you know, the cornier, the better. You yeah. know, just lean into it more and more. Like, guys, you know, I'm 85, or was it 81? Well, shit, I'm yeah. older than you are. You know, like, you know, yeah. the yeah, cornier, yeah. the better. Um, and then, like, having set expectations and given the humor, let's now watch me talk. <laughs> as yeah. compared to how that guy talks, you know, over a slightly longer period of time, not like watch with the sound off, but actually listen to the words that I'm saying. Like that's how it's got to work. Now, the reason why I disagree with you slightly is that I think the defensiveness does have a good chippiness. Like you like a little bit is like vigor is better. Right. And so one of the things that I think you said is that like, this has extended the news cycle for the age yes. issue. I, I would agree with that. About the her, about the her report, I would say about specifically. About the her report, yes. Yes. But the her report is not the issue. The issue is what the her report does to the age. And with age, we should not be talking about it less. It is going to be the topic. We should be talking about it more. Uh, we should be talking about age as an issue. We should talk about age as something that affects all of us. We should be definitely uh, clipping the quotes from uh, Haley and DeSantis about how Trump has changed. Yep. Um, I just, I think we, I, I don't, I, to me, it's not a problem to extend the coverage of the Herb Report because actually I think substantively there's a very good argument that this guy like did the reverse Bill Barr, uh, you know, took an exoneration and made it into a political hit job. There's tons of specific writing in the Herb Report that was really over the top that, if uh, the Mueller Justice Department had any supervision at all, they would have, you can't write that in your exoneration report. It's a hit job. But they refused to supervise him because they didn't want to do what Bill Barr did to Bob Mueller. And so again, like as usual, the, the, the good guys who are playing by the rules get it coming and going. Now, the good news is with all this extended attention, that's starting to come out. And again, like the swing voters that we need, they're not paying attention to this right now, not in any way that's going to stick. It's the, the the people that you need to persuade are people who are a little bit further up the information chain that are that are kind of influencers. And the more the her reporters in the news, the more people are like, oh, that was a hit job. That's and Trump's actually older and worse. Um, yeah, I, 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 I would I would disagree with you in that. I, I don't know if drawing a line between Biden and the Justice Department 
serves what I think got Biden elected in 2020, which is that he is a steady hand at the wheel. He is going to uh, let let the cards fall where they may. He's that that uh, Merrick Garland is not his personal lawyer. He doesn't have to agree with everything that he did. Now, is there room for pushback? Is there room for somewhere in the Democratic orbit for somebody to say exactly what you're saying and and go full bare knuckle on it and 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 call it a hit job? Absolutely. I 100 percent think that it is. Uh, I, I don't know the, the closer that it gets to the candidate mm, for me. Yeah, yeah, that may be right. But I will say like, there's a big difference between like, I mean, the specific reference, like, I mean, <laughs> the fact that Joe Biden, literally the busiest job, that, like there may be other people who are as busy, but there's nobody busier than the president of the United States. So it is the busiest job you can have if you're taking it yeah. seriously. And it's the day after October 7th, right? So it's the busiest time at the busiest job. And there's five hours. And like, he's he's saying like, doesn't remember years? Like years, who remembers years? You remember dates. And so the claim that like, he didn't remember the year, he didn't like off the cuff remember the year Bo died. Like that's not that unusual. And also like, why the f- would you say something like that? And so it's different from like when Trump is talking to the Justice Department where he's like literally firing people unless they go after folks yeah. he doesn't like versus Biden just complaining about what was a political hit job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I think that there's, there's there, you know, I, I think we, we totally agree on the idea that not a lot of people have tuned in right now. And right now this is a uh, a, a high level game in terms of of who is paying attention to it, yeah. but uh, the other thing we totally agree on is that age is going to be a big conversation yeah. throughout this because we have yeah. you know the the oldest uh, the oldest race ever and it is beating the last oldest race by four years because it was the same guy. So uh, uh, we will we will certainly there's nowhere to go in terms of the conversation around this and and the Biden campaign will certainly have to figure out a way to talk about it as will the Trump campaign going forward. But uh, somebody that I've really enjoyed talking to is Dimitri Melhorn. Uh, uh, Dimitri, thank you so much for uh, uh, joining us. If there is another place where folks can uh, can uh, uh, direct their attention, please let us know. Uh, Will do. Okay. Thank you very much. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dong and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to say thank you to Dimitri Melman, it is letter P, letter X, number three, guest.com. You can uh, find video of this show at our TikTok, Justin R. Young on Instagram. TikTok is Justin R. Young. Instagram is Justin R. Young. YouTube is politics, politics, politics. If you want to find us on the X, X Twitter, you can do so. PX3 tweets for the show's account, Justin R. Young. For me, you want to find me live, it is px3live.com. I'm live on most of those platforms. You can share this podcast with your friends and family, px3podcast.com. If you would like to support us with a one-time donation, you can do so. PayPal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. Post office box, 1531 Austin, Texas, 78715. Of course, you can get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus gets you two bonus podcasts per week 
covering everything we miss on the free podcasting schedule. And your $10 tier gets your name read like these fine folks on the Titanic. $10 tier, including Sam, John, Neemeister, Edwin, and vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checker, Sarah Jeannie, Spider Rogue, Matthew, Dr. G, Dustin, Brad, D Laser, Nick, just another pilot, middle aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, The Jen, Alo, D, really? Andrew, Lisa, Fat Tony's PJs from New York, Devon, the CFP, Gloria Young, my mom, Gray Zone, Robert, Jay, Neil, Yield Pinball Shop, John Park, DP4 Bongo, Neil, uh, his nerdiness, Charles, Audrey stole Adler's spot, Darren, Idris, Berkeley, Steven, Nomadic Terran, Molly's delightful demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, and you, if you are smart enough to head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com, sign up at the $10 level. Make sure you get your name read here on this show each and every episode. And that's it for this week. Who knows what next week has in store for us? Oh, I know. I'm going to the border. Yeah, I'm on a junket to the border. I've heard some names that'll be there. I have no idea what we'll do, but uh, we're going to see the border. We're heading down to the border. What can I say? It's going to be an interesting time. Till then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying... Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this is the only show that dares discuss all three. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.